Now please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers 22. This will be our Old Testament reading. Today's sermon text in Acts 9 is about the conversion of Saul, leader, the Apostle Paul. And um, <clears throat> something. Uh, the reason I'm reading from Numbers 22 is because Saul was not the first person that God stopped in his tracks on a road um, through remarkable, unusual means when he was on his way to do harm to God's people. And instead, the Lord interrupted him supernaturally and made him an agent of his blessing to the people of God. So let's read that analogous example from Numbers 22, verses 21 to 35. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey? on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, Because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men. But speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Well, there's more to that story, but now let's turn our attention to the story of Saul. Acts chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 to 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed... The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him 
and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. You may be seated. I don't think very many of us here will probably ever write uh, our memoirs. If we did, probably nobody would read them. But um, I suppose some of us have maybe imagined, what what would it be like if I did write the story of my life? What would you want to say about yourself? Start with, I was born at a very young age, that sort of thing. Um, A question I think is really interesting is, if you wrote your own autobiography, what would the title be? Hopefully not something like a series of unfortunate events. That's one possibility. But seriously, what, what would you title your life if you wrote the story? be a good lunch table conversation for this afternoon. Um, Well, most of you know who John Bunyan is. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And some of you may know that Bunyan uh, also wrote his own autobiography. And the title that he gave to his life story was Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Now, in that title, Bunyan was... Uh, using and putting together two phrases from the Bible, both of them penned by the main character in today's passage, the Apostle Paul. Grace abounding comes from Romans 5.20, which says, when, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then chief of sinners comes from 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So Paul, the apostle formerly known as Saul, um, described himself as the chief of sinners, and he knew from his own experience that as great as his sin was, as a persecutor of the church and so on, he knew that God's grace had abounded to him all the more. In fact, I think that uh, Bunyan's title would Uh, for his autobiography, would have been a great title for the story of the Apostle Paul's life. And for that matter, it would be a pretty good title, I think, for the story of any of our lives. So if you ever do write your autobiography, you could seriously consider that to put on the cover page. Um, But this, Acts chapter 9, this is where that great change begins for Saul, for Paul. And We're going to look at the history of his conversion today in three parts. Number one, we'll call grace abounding, verses 1 to 9. Number two, we're going to call God's chosen vessel, verses 10 to 19. And number three, a jar of clay, verses 20 to 31. So grace abounding, God's chosen vessel, and a jar of clay. All right, so verse 1, 
Where do we find Saul? We find him still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The last time we heard about Saul, he was uh, ravaging the church, chapter 8, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This was uh, the occasion, in fact, for that great scattering of the church from Jerusalem out into the surrounding areas that we read about at the beginning of chapter 8. It was, in fact, the reason that Philip went to Samaria and spread the gospel there. And then, by extension, the reason he ended up meeting the Ethiopian eunuch from uh, last Sunday. And you might think, well, okay, as long as these people are not living and teaching in Jerusalem anymore, maybe their opponents will just leave them alone. Uh, But not in Saul's case. Saul now is determined to follow these Christians um, who are, we might say, refugees now, living in a kind of exile in Syria. Uh, That's where Damascus is. Damascus is the capital of Syria, north and a little east of Israel. And he's, he's getting letters that will allow him to follow them there and essentially have them extradited back to Jerusalem uh, to face trial um, before the religious leaders um, back in Jerusalem. So I want to invite you to think about this um, now in light of the kind of big picture theme that we've been hammering on in almost every sermon this entire series. That is the theme Asking the question, what is Acts about? What is Acts about? And if you look on our church website, you see the little picture that's up there for this sermon series. You'll see that Acts is about Christ's church on Christ's mission by Christ's spirit for Christ's glory. Christ's church on Christ's mission by Christ's spirit for Christ's glory. It's not just about what the apostles did or what the early church was up to after Christ ascended into heaven. No, first and foremost, the book of Acts is about what Jesus is doing, what the risen, ascended, enthroned Jesus is doing as he reigns from heaven, as he is acting now through his apostles in his church by his spirit to establish his kingdom and to accomplish his plans. That's what Acts is about. And remembering that big picture point of Acts should really shape the way um, that we understand Saul's conversion, maybe in a, in a fresh way. Um, when we think about Paul's story, it's easy to think um, just in terms of his individual experience, his personal transformation, and the, the way that's a, a model or an example of every Christian's conversion. And that's a, a natural mistake to make because Paul's conversion is a dramatic example of the grace of God at work in a a very unlikely person, the 180-degree reversal of his life. And it's true that, from one point of view, what happens to Paul is, in essence, the same thing that happens to any sinner saved by grace. Dead in sin, but God makes us alive, right? And it's not through any effort or deserving of, of our own. It is only by the grace of God that this happens. But if that's the only thing that we see in Saul's conversion, then I think we're, we may be missing the, the, the bigger point, in fact, the main point of why it's here in Acts, which is, in fact, the, the uniqueness of Paul's story. How Paul's story is, in fact, one of a kind. How our life story is, is not like Paul's. And, and so I want to make sure I, I draw that out for us for a minute, because we, we want to be reading this, this, story, this, this history on, on both levels. So again, thinking about that big picture of Acts, 
uh, we need to ask um, this one very important question here, and that is, why Saul? Why Saul? Why this man at this time in the history? And I think the answer is that once again, Luke is showing us here who the main character of this whole book really is. It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's not Philip. It's the Lord Jesus. He's the main character of Acts. So when when Saul uh, first started ravaging the church, what do we see? We saw that that very persecution that Saul meant to destroy the church had the opposite effect, right? Because what, what happened? Um, the church was scattered into the surrounding region of Judea and Samaria. This was all part of the sovereign plan of the risen, ascended Lord Jesus to carry out his program for the growth of the church that he laid out from the very beginning in chapter 1. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And it was actually through Saul's persecution that that began to happen. For all Saul's efforts to oppose Christ, it was actually Christ's will that was being accomplished through his very opposition. What we're seeing now in the conversion of Saul is that that sovereign plan of the risen, ascended, reigning Lord Jesus in heaven is being revealed in a new way. And in fact, the most spectacular way yet. I love the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace triumphs of his grace and the conversion of Saul. That's what that hymn is talking about. That sort of thing. It's a a triumph of the grace of the ascended, reigning Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. Christ has deliberately chosen the most unlikely person. The church's very fiercest enemy. The one who is doing the very most to try to destroy the church and stop its growth. And he says... Give me that one. Give me that man. That's the man that I'm going to use as my primary instrument for taking my gospel to the nations and for writing a huge percentage of the New Testament scriptures. So more than anything else, I think the conversion of Saul demonstrates the sovereignty of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the triumph of his grace in the life of Saul, and in the life of the church. And so, verse 3, as he went his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I don't want to stop there for a minute, because the way the Lord Jesus puts that is is a very important verse for thinking about the Christian life. For each of us, we're, we're going to talk um, when we when we talk about what it means to be saved. Um, we often speak about the phrase "union with Christ," union with Christ. And so, um, usually, when we talk about that, we're we're describing how when you trust in Christ for salvation, um, the Holy Spirit in that moment unites you to the Lord Jesus Christ in this unbreakable spiritual bond between you and him, where all of the blessings that Jesus has to give now belong to you. Why? Because you belong to him, because you are knit together with him through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what is his 
becomes yours. And so from Christ we receive forgiveness, we receive righteousness, we receive holiness, we receive acceptance, adoption as the children of God, strength for godly living, and and then one day the promise of the glory of heaven. All these things come to us because they belong to Christ and we're united to him and all the blessings of salvation flow to us through our union with our Savior. That's union with Christ. But you see, there's another aspect to union with Christ that maybe we don't think about quite as much. It's one thing to talk about what we get from Christ through our union with him, but, but union with Christ is... In another sense, a, it's really a, a two-way street. Because by uniting himself with us, and us with himself, Jesus is also identifying himself with us very closely. So closely that what happens to us in this life, he considers as, in a sense, happening to him. And, and he, he said this in Matthew 25. Remember, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And remember how the king answers. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What's done to his people, Jesus counts as something done to him. Why is that? It's because we're in union with him. We're joined to him in this unbreakable spiritual bond through the power of the Holy Spirit. When persecution broke out against the church in chapter 8, it did not mean, it did not mean that Jesus had withdrawn from the church for a time and, and left them to the power of their enemies. No. Jesus says to Saul here, you haven't just been persecuting my people, you've been persecuting me. Because that church is my body, I am their head, and what happens to the body happens to the whole body. And this is still true today. Whatever happens to you as a Christian, Christ counts it and treats it as though it's happening to him because you're united to him. That means that you're never alone and isolated in your suffering, no matter what he may call you to endure. All right, now back to Saul. Let's think about this from his perspective. It's, it's hard to get our minds around just how overwhelming it is must have been to to realize in this this flash of insight from the Lord that you had been so wrong about something so momentous. Saul had been so zealous, so energetic, so convinced and for all of the wrong things. He says in First Timothy, I was a I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. In chapter twenty six chapter twenty six he'll say I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Chapter 22, he says, I was zealous for God. But in this moment of time, all of that fervor opposing Christ must have just simply drained away to emptiness. He's confronted now with this transformational 
fact, the transformational fact of history, the transformational fact that confronts each and every one of us, that Jesus is indeed alive from the dead. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And we have to understand the Christian faith stands or falls upon the historical assertion that Jesus died and then rose from the dead. And if that is true, then Christianity is true. If Jesus is alive, then Jesus is the Lord. And there's no other reasonable option than to obey him and to devote ourselves to his service. See, there's going to be a lot left here for Saul to learn. In many ways, his understanding is going to need to mature over time. But this is the pivotal moment. This is where his heart really reverses course, and the Lord Jesus himself sets Paul on a new path by opening his eyes, essentially, to that great central fact of the resurrection, which is going to shape the rest of Paul's life and all of his teaching, as it's expressed in the rest of the New Testament. But the Lord Jesus has more in mind here for Saul than merely his conversion. Christ's plan is is not merely to stop Saul in his tracks, to to, um, put an end to the persecution. That's just the beginning. Christ's plan is, is bigger than that. He tells Saul, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And that brings us now to the interaction between Saul and Ananias in verses 10 to 19. So uh, in Damascus, um, Jesus gives a vision to this Christian man named Ananias, and he says, Ananias, you need to go find Saul. You need to lay your hands on him so that he can regain his sight. And you can just imagine how Ananias would have felt at this point. He, he basically replies, Lord, are you sure you mean that? that Saul, the one that I've heard about? And Ananias knows All he really knows about Saul at this point is that he's a major persecutor of the church. He knows that he's come to Damascus for the express purpose of arresting Christians. And so understandably, he's thrown a little bit off balance by what Jesus has just told him to do. But listen to how Jesus reassures him here. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So this person who was formerly the enemy of Christ and his people is now going to be the opposite. He's going to be this special instrument or or vessel, this container, that's how we should think of it, in which Christ is going to carry the gospel to all kinds of people all over the Mediterranean world. And we'll come back back to that idea in a minute of, of Paul as as a container, a vessel, a jar for carrying the gospel. So hold that thought. But for now, um, you know, the story here, Ananias obeys, he goes to Saul, he lays his hands on him to heal his vision on the one hand and then also to give him the Holy Spirit. That's what this laying on of hands represents, the Holy Spirit being given to this new believer. And immediately, verse 18 says, something like scales, like like fish scales is how we should envision that, uh, fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Uh, We can remember here how Jesus um, healed many blind people during his earthly ministry. And each of those healings of Jesus um, was was teaching people something about Jesus, something about who he was, what he came to do, 
what his mission was, and what his kingdom was all about. They were, those healings were a picture in the bodies of those people that he healed, really of, of the inward healing that he had come to bring to people's spiritual vision, spiritual sight. And so in Saul's case, as those scales fall away and his sight is restored, it is displaying visibly, outwardly in his body what is happening, or perhaps has already happened, or perhaps is, is, is beginning to happen spiritually for Saul. Um, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus rebukes the people in the church of Laodicea who like to say to themselves, we're, we're rich, we've prospered, we need nothing, not realizing, Jesus says, that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Paul was blind spiritually uh, before Christ blinded him physically. And so it's kind of an irony in what Jesus is doing here because it was, in a sense, that light from heaven which temporarily took away his physical vision that was what also awakened Paul's spiritual vision to be able to see now with the eyes of faith. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Paul, a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the pattern uh, displayed very vividly, and, and in fact, literally in the conversion of Saul, but it's the spiritual reality that's happening every time Jesus brings a person from darkness to light, from death to life, from spiritual blindness to a clear view of his grace and truth in the gospel. And that includes the experience of our hearts if we're trusting in Christ. And now, even as we affirm that, again, we want to remember we, got, we, need, we want to be reading this history on, on two levels. So as much as Saul's conversion sets, in one sense, this pattern for every conversion of any Christian, let's go back to that other idea that Saul's conversion is also unique. It's one of a kind because of the unique one of a kind job that Saul is going to have as the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys and in his inspired letter writing. And so this is an appropriate point to look uh, beyond Saul's conversion experience next to the early days of his Christian life, beginning of his ministry. In verse 15, you remember how Jesus told Ananias, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, and so on. Um, the King James Version says they're a chosen vessel, um, kind of like, again, a container, a jar for carrying the gospel. And the reason I bring this up again is because I think it's a very interesting parallel with Second Corinthians chapter 4. It's a pretty famous passage there where uh, Paul talks about how we're carrying as Christians a treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but we're carrying that treasure, Paul says, in jars of clay, or the King James Version says, earthen vessels. It's the same word. We have the treasure of the gospel, but our experience of the Christian life now, this side of heaven, is characterized by what? It's characterized by suffering. It's characterized by our lives taking the shape of the death of Jesus. We have that treasure, 
We have it in earthen vessels, jars of clay. What I want us to understand is that for Paul, that was not just abstract or theoretical. It was autobiographical. It was the story of his life, of his real experience from the very earliest days after his conversion. You listened how in verse 15 he goes on, which I didn't mention earlier. Jesus goes on to say, Ananias, he's a chosen instrument, or vessel, or jar of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for, what? I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul is going to be the Lord's container or vessel or jar for carrying the gospel to the nations, but what kind of vessel, what kind of jar is he going to be? He's going to be an earthen vessel. He's going to be a jar of clay. Jesus is about to show him how much he must suffer. What we see in verses 20 to 31 is that dynamic starting to play out in Paul's life from the very beginning of his Christian life. Again, he's, he's carrying the gospel. Right away you find him preaching in Damascus, preaching in Jerusalem. But immediately what happens in both of those cities? Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. It's kind of another irony here. Jesus' chosen vessel or container for carrying the gospel is himself having to be carried in this very, very humble way, in peril of his life. He comes to Jerusalem, and once again, the disciples there get, get over their initial suspicion, surprise. After, after they, they get over that, he, he says that he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. But then it says once again, they were seeking to kill him. Already, Saul is learning. This is going to be repeated throughout his missionary journeys. But he's learning what it feels like to have his life conformed to the shape of his Savior's life and death. His Savior who poured out his life to death for Paul, for Saul, so that that chief of sinners could be forgiven set free and have his spiritual blindness cured. All that was only possible because of the death of Christ for Saul. But now it is that Jesus, that crucified and risen Jesus, who has chosen Saul to be this instrument, this vessel to carry his word. And so for Paul, carrying that message is now going to mean his life taking the shape of Jesus' death. Why is that? Because that's really what it means to be a Christian. 2 Corinthians 4 goes on, after the jars of clay verse, it goes on to say, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, So that, how does it end up? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That's the life story of the Apostle Paul in a nutshell. And it all begins right here in chapter 9. The story of Paul's life could very well be titled, like John Bunyan's, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners.
And although Paul is indeed a unique person in salvation history, you and I don't have exactly the same mission that he had. We don't have his same apostolic office. And we probably will not be called to suffer as intensely or in exactly the same ways that he did. Nonetheless, he remains forever a grand exemplar of the triumph of Christ's grace, the way that Christ's goodness abounds to each and every sinner saved by grace, including all those sinners saved by grace gathered within these walls and in this pulpit this morning. It's not just the conversion in the conversion of Saul that we can see and sing the glories of our God and King, the triumphs of his grace. It's the story of your life. Your salvation is a triumph of his grace, too. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as amazing as it is that you would take the church's greatest enemy and Saul and transform him by your grace into one of the church's greatest heroes, Lord, it is also amazing that you would take sinners like us and make us into your children, declare us righteous. Make us holy. Lord, we ask that you would renew in us wonder and appreciation for this. Forgive us for the ways we take it for granted. Forgive us for our self-righteousness, where we so often think of ourselves as the cause of our salvation. Lord, you alone can save us. We depend completely on your grace. And we pray that as you opened Saul's eyes cause the scales to fall away and change them supernaturally in a way he could not change himself. Lord, we pray that you would be at work still in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit to change us by that same almighty transformational power. And give us strength and endurance, Lord, to walk that road of suffering, of carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus in hope that the life of Jesus will also be manifested in us. Lord, your grace has triumphed in us. And we pray that it would indeed triumph among any of those who are uh, gathered in this worship service this morning who have not yet experienced this transformation from death to life, from blindness to spiritual sight. Lord, give to all of us that spiritual vision. Tear the scales away, Lord. Cause them to fall from all of our hearts so we might lay hold of Christ in faith and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.